Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first 17 verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And may God open up His Word and bless us this morning. Keep the wind out the way. Guys, think with me about a carnival funhouse. We have those crazy mirrors. Now, maybe you've seen them somewhere on TV. Maybe you've actually gone there. I don't know if I ever have. I probably have. Some, sometime or another. Make you look. How do they make you look? Tall and skinny short and fat, or sometimes you have a combination. There's the ones that kind of go, and you, know, you look at them and you got a fat head and a skinny chest and a fat belly and skinny legs and fat feet. That's that kind of deal. Brethren, we call that a distorted image. It's no longer accurate. Now, there's enough of a true representation of the person so that when you look into it, you know that it's, it's you. You know that it's not some other person just standing behind a piece of clear glass, but certain parts of your body are what? They're blown out of proportion. You can either overemphasize or underemphasize. Folks, the same kind of distorted image that same kind of distorted image can exist in our mind. It can exist in our doctrine. It can exist in our teaching. And it can exist in our understanding. <laughs> you see, folks, in the Bibles that we hold in our hands, there is a body of truth. And just like when we stand in front of that mirror with our bodies and it makes it all contorted, there is a body of truth in this book. And what can happen is because of overemphasis and underemphasis in certain areas in our understanding or in our teaching, what we can actually do is we can take this body of truth and we can distort it where the head is fat and the chest is thin because we overemphasize certain aspects of it while by our negligence or neglect 
we, we underemphasize something. And what I come down to is this. Balance is critical. And by balance, I don't simply mean this. I don't mean that if you come across two, two truths in Scripture, that you give them equal time. That you give them a, a, a 50-50 uh, division there. By balance, I mean that we emphasize in due proportion the way the Bible emphasizes things. If you find the truth in the Bible that's dealt with much, then we deal with it much. If it's dealt with little, then we deal with it little. Guys, the first church I was a member of, you would have thought that modest dresses and head coverings and women being silent in the church consisted of 60% of the New Testament. Really, by the emphasis that, that came forth from the pulpit on the teaching there. In some churches, you might think tithing made up 90% of the Bible. And that's a reality. That's how much they emphasize it. You have some churches where you you would think that, well, you know, the emphasis might be the Ten Commandments. Or you have some churches where they still emphasize grace and they never talk about the law of God. You know, you have these kind of, there are certain churches where homeschooling, that's the thing. You think that the Bible has lots to say about it, and actually, that word doesn't actually exist in the Bible, and, and when it comes right down to it, the way you educate your children, it needs to be a biblical education, and the parents are responsible, and she be the father. But as far as, you know, folks, you just don't find a whole lot of weight there. And so what I'm trying to emphasize here is we have a responsibility to emphasize in due proportion the way scriptures emphasize something. And you know, there was an old brother, well, I won't even say his name, but he used to be on the radio, I used to hear him every day at lunch. It didn't matter what text this guy preached from, by the end he was talking about smoking cigarettes and chewing chewing gum. Well, I'm going to say all these things, folks, not to belittle homeschooling or modesty or the Ten Commandments or, or even advocating the smoking of cigarettes. The whole thing is, we just want to give due proportion and due attention and due weight to things as the Bible does. When the Bible gives a certain frequency and a certain emphasis and a certain repetition to any given truth, we don't want to ignore that emphasis or that frequency or that repetition. This brings me to a statement right now that I want to make about distortion that is very prevalent today. And that I believe that we in this church have a tendency towards. Now that ought to perk your ears up. Because what I'm saying is I believe that there is a tendency in, in Christianity today, what professes to be Christianity, and I think we are very influenced by it, I think the tendency is here, and I think when I get done with the message, you might look at this and agree that that's right. We have had that tendency. Now what is it? I believe it's a distortion among us goes like this. And what I want to seek to do today is have us give attention to bringing it back to proper proportion and perspective and balance. This is what it is. Now listen, listen carefully. If you don't really get what I mean right up front, I'm going to make it much more clear as I move along. But I believe that we tend to be today overly event-oriented when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to salvation. Now, I'll, I'll explain that to you. What I mean is this. We tend to view salvation as a singular past event. That's true. We talk like that among us. We talk about when we were saved. You meet somebody. Are you, are you saved? And when did that happen? We, we speak that way among ourselves. We think that way among ourselves. We think of the gospel of God primarily as a message that we do what with. You know, folks, here we are in the inner city. We pray for souls all the time. We pray, Lord, save. Well, we attach to that all the time, and rightfully so, rightfully so, the preaching of the gospel. But you know what becomes the norm in our thinking is when we, you hear the gospel, if I were to stand up and say, I'm going to preach the gospel to you today, you'd be thinking, well, who are the folks that are here that are lost that need to hear this thing? 
What children are lost among us? What friends, what family members are here today? We tend to do it primarily in that capacity. We proclaim to the lost the gospel in order to bring about this singular event of salvation. And then they get saved, and then, you know, they go on with their Christian life. That's basically the way we think about it. The word saved, think with me. Think with me about how you use it. But think about this word saved. Saved typically brings about thought of what? A past time and place. Or even if those of you that don't know the exact date or the exact time, you have a period in your life. You know, we think about saved. Oh yeah, well I remember back in Kalamazoo, Michigan. That, that, that's my mentality. And typically when we talk among each other, that's, that's how we think. That's where we're geared. That's where our thoughts go. When we initially came to faith in Christ. Now folks, what I want you to realize is thinking that way is not sin. It's not wrong. It's not like the scriptures never speak in that context. It does. It's not error to think that way. The error arises and the problem arises when we think primarily in that way. You know what's happened? How many how many of you folks have heard this expression? Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Now folks, that's the generation we live in. The once saved, always saved there. People love to quote that. People love to you know what they mean by that? They mean if I have this event in my life, if I have this time, if I have this specific, uh, this specific happening with God, and you know some people attribute it to saying a prayer, to walking an aisle, or even if it's genuine salvation, even if it was a salvation experience where they first come to Christ in faith, people view this thing as once saved, once this initial deal happens, I'm always saved. And what they mean by that is it doesn't matter what happens after that. It doesn't matter how I live after that. It doesn't matter if I fall back into sin or I go the way of the world or anything. If I once had that salvation experience, I'm saved all the way to the end. In the end, I'm guaranteed to heaven. And folks, that is error. I'm going to show you that in the scriptures in a second. I'm just basically doing an introduction right now. But that's your error. You see, even though we tend to resist that, what's happened is, we haven't resisted the error in its entirety because we still think so much and we put so much weight in and we tend to talk to people so much about this one experience that I just challenged you guys right here in the beginning. I realized Paul spoke about his testimony twice in the book of Acts. I realized that. And, and you know what? It's good that you have testimony. It, that's good. And it's good that you can tell people. And I wouldn't discourage anything. But I'll tell you this, throughout the epistles and throughout the gospel, you don't see the men and the women there always and constantly alluding back to one experience. That's not how the epistles are addressed to the church. It isn't, well, you Corinthians, you know, I know you're falling into all this sin, and I know you're allowing this guy in your church and sleeping with his father's wife. But, you know, tell me about your past one-time experience when you came to the Lord, you said the prayer, you walked the aisle, you raised your hand, you had this salvation experience. That's not what Paul does. Not what he does. I intend to prove to you guys from God's Word that salvation is primarily, I'm not saying old, but primarily it is viewed in Scripture as an ongoing process of faith by which we progress toward an ultimate culmination of salvation in the future. And I intend to prove to you that the gospel is yet necessary to be preached to the law. But so much of the emphasis in the New Testament about the gospel is not specifically for the law. It's for the saved. It's the necessity of the gospel in the life of the believer. Yes, we must preach it to the law. But I think you'll see as we look at the scriptures today 
that gospel message is not just for the lost people. It is for the health of the church. It is for the health of the believer. It is for the sake of bringing us ultimately to that final culmination of salvation. So that's what we'll be doing. This is no small matter at all. It isn't because it has to do with the health. It has to do with the walk. It has to do with the triumph and the victory of the Christian in this life. So, I have four headings. My second week in a row, I'm doing really good. I actually have headings. I want to prove this to you, make a case under four headings. The first is a contextual proof, just in the context here, Romans 1, 1 through 17. The second is a numerical proof. I just want to show you some numbers or a statistical proof look at the, at the New Testament as to what the way that the words of salvation and faith are being used there. The third is a referential proof. And by that, I mean, if you have a reference Bible, you know what I mean by referential. You can go to a reference Bible and you look at a certain verse, it gives you a reference. That means it's another text that has to do with a similar thing. And then the final thing is a practical proof. And I just, I want to appeal to you guys on a practical level, I mean, I, I think you'll see that, that, yes, Scripture teaches this, but it's also very practical and it's very understandable. And you guys as Christians will see this from your own life. So the first thing, a contextual proof. Okay, got your Bibles open. You're going to need your Bibles open in this. This, this is going to be, in some ways, a Bible study. It's going to be very Bible-intensive here. So, got your Bibles, you got them open. <coughs> First thing, you, first place you want to be is in Romans chapter one. Look at verse sixteen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now hear this. Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God. What he means is the Spirit of God powerfully works through the preaching of the Gospel. We looked at last week, the Gospel is to be proclaimed. It is to be communicated as it is. God powerfully works through that message for salvation. Some of your Bibles may say unto salvation. But it's got this idea of leading to, unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, what is the salvation that Paul has in mind here in Romans 1? What is the salvation he has in mind when he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation? Now, here's the thing. Is Paul thinking only about the first event of conversion? Now, think with me here. I think that is often how we view this text, and I believe we do so with a distorted approach. I don't think Paul has in mind primarily the first point of laying hold of Christ in faith. Now, that would definitely be included. I don't, I don't disclude that here, or exclude that. But I believe he has in mind much more than that. And why do I think that? Well, think with me here. First, first off, you have the word salvation. The word salvation is not viewed in the New Testament as simply the lost man first coming to Christ in faith. And let's look at this. Uh, you, you know, you guys can go home, and if, if you've got a concordance or you've got a, a Bible program on your computer, you can simply type in salvation and look at every occurrence in the New Testament. The amazing thing is, it is not, the, the, the New Testament record is not of a one-time past single experience of first coming Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples. Turn in your Bible to Romans 13.11. We'll look at Paul's usage of the word salvation right here in, in the same epistle. See how he uses it in Romans 13.11, if you have your Bible, 
turn there because I want you to see this. I think it's so important that we have our understanding and our minds enlightened to this because I think it will help us to view Christianity and our Christian walk and the gospel and salvation in, in almost a, a, a revolutionary or a, just a, a, you know, a mind-opening way. I think it'll, it, for some of us, it'll be a turn in the way we really think about the idea of being saved and about salvation. Romans 13:11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Now listen to what he says here. This is phenomenal. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Whoa. You know what he's saying there? You first believed sometime in the past. That past tense. Believe. You did that. That happened in the past. You came to Christ genuinely in faith, you Roman Christians, in the past. Your salvation is nearer. Christians, your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. You know what that means? The ultimate culmination of salvation wasn't when you first came to Christ, and it's not even what you have right now today. But it's nearer today than then because it's in the future. And the reason it's nearer today is because we've moved forward. We're coming closer to an ultimate fulfillment of salvation. Hey, let's just ask ourselves right here. What in the world is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? Well, you know, a lot of times, here's another typical thing. You say, what does Jesus Christ save us from? People will say, from our sins. That's a good answer, a biblical answer. His name would be called Jesus. Why? He'll save his people from their sins. But I'll tell you, typically, the reason that being saved from our sins ultimately leads to this salvation is because by being saved from the unrighteousness and the ungodliness of that sin, we are saved from the wrath of God that is revealed against that sin. That's what Scripture says. You are saved from the wrath of God, folks. That's what God is in the business of salvation to bring about. A deliverance from his own wrath, from his own indignation against that sin, against that unrighteousness, and against that ungodliness, which we're going to see as we move forward in Romans chapter 1. Second Corinthians 7.10, again, the same Apostle Paul using the same term salvation. Let's see how he uses it here. And folks, there are other examples in your Bible. You can search out every usage of the word salvation and you will find that it just simply is not limited to a first-time experience. I could have dealt with more, but for the sake of time, the Second Corinthians 7.10, he's speaking to the Corinthian Christians who had repented because of some sin that was in the church. And he says this, he's speaking not about the godly repentance of a first-time repenter, he's speaking about the ongoing repentance of, of these Corinthian Christians. And listen to what he says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. You see, folks, as we believe and as we repent in the course of our life, this, this is a life that's leading to salvation. It's in the future. First Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So to, to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians, it's always salvation is something coming to. We are not destined, we are not foreordained for a, for a wrath that's coming, but rather for a deliverance from the wrath that's coming. Salvation from it. 1 Peter 1.5 uh, Now Peter's speaking close to those scattered Christians throughout Asia Minor. He says, speaking of Christians who by God's power are being guarded through faith. See, they're guarded through faith. They already have faith. They're being kept by the power of God established in their faith for what purpose? for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Again, salvation is looking forward. It's looking forward. And I think if we go back to Romans 1.16 and you begin to read salvation, not so much as a one-time past experience, but you see it as an ongoing process that is leading towards an ultimate culmination of salvation, you will read that text different. So the concept of salvation in the New Testament is mainly, it seems, about that ultimate triumph of God's power demonstrated through the gospel in bringing believers to a final ultimate salvation, eternal security and safety, and the ultimate deliverance from wrath in the day of wrath. Now this includes the first event, the first moment, and the first exercise of the power of God through the granting of faith and repentance, but it's much more than that, much, much more. The believers here in this place need to hear the gospel in order to ultimately obtain salvation. If you read the word salvation in Romans 1.16 as that ongoing process, culminating in that final victorious salvation, then you won't limit the power of God. You see that? The power of God isn't just limited to the first time bringing ushering into the kingdom. The power of God through the gospel is powerful to keep us in the faith of the gospel day by day by day. We are kept by the power of God through faith, leading ultimately to His salvation. You see, folks, I'm not saying that you have to be saved over and over and over again. I'm not saying that salvation happens over and over and over again. I'm saying that every day you have to continue to believe the gospel over and over and over and over again. And it's only through doing that that God is bringing you to His salvation. So, the gospel is not just for unbelievers to come to Christ for the first time, those who are already believing as well. Now, let's read it again and think about it. Romans 1.16 Read it again. But but view salvation more from this standpoint this time. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Got a lot more present application if you read it in that sense. The second thing is, look at Romans one seventeen. Again, within the context here, you see the word from faith for faith or faith to faith, however your Bibles may read in, in verse 17. You see that there? If you have the ESV, you have a footnote. Look at the bottom in the footnote. You see what it says there? Beginning and ending in faith. You see that? You guys realize what the text is saying? In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or beginning and ending in faith. You guys see what's happening? In the gospel, you have a message of the righteousness of God. Over the last week we looked at it. If you look, don't look here, I'll just tell you about it. In Romans 3.22, it says a righteousness of God that is for the believer. It's not a righteousness of God that God keeps all to himself. It's not just about his character and his attributes. We're, the righteousness of God is actually a righteousness that God imputes. It's for believers. He gives it to believers. A righteousness that we don't have in and of ourselves. That Jesus Christ purchased for us. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. You know what good news is? That even the worst of sinners can be declared righteous in the sight of God through a righteousness outside of themselves which they could not get. They, they didn't have the power in themselves to obey. They've fallen short of keeping the law of God. fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All men, Jew and Gentile alike, condemned under the law. We are under our curse. And yet God comes along and he says, here's the righteousness of God. And I give it to the believer by faith. Right. So that you stand.
stand in perfection before me. Now listen, that message that comes forth from the gospel, it is from faith to faith. Faith for faith. There's a progression. It isn't that the gospel and this message of an imputed righteousness is just for me the first time I come to Christ. It's beginning with faith, yes, but it goes all the way through. And folks, when you pass off the faith of this earth, if you're a Christian, faith is done. It's from faith to faith. But when you see in faith, faith, you don't live by faith anymore. You live by sight. Amen. So folks, what this does is the gospel is actually the power of God unto salvation from the very beginning of faith all the way to the end through the very central message of the gospel, which is a righteousness of God for the believer. And that's our standing, folks. Jesus Christ purchased the righteousness for us that we could not do. Adam never did. Israel couldn't accomplish. It's for us. By faith in Him. So from faith to faith. Now, again, Romans 1.15. Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We don't usually think about preaching the gospel to believers. We preach the gospel to unbelievers. But preaching the gospel is exactly what Paul says he wants to come and do among those Roman Christians. And you know, you can argue, oh, well, there would have been some lost people among them. I realize that to be the case. And I realize Paul was always anxious and ready to preach the gospel to the lost. But you see what he says there. You Roman Christians, back up in the end of the first little part there, the introduction, he says they were called to belong to Jesus because they were loved of God. And he says to those very same people, you, you Christians, you that are loved of God, you that are called to belong to Jesus Christ, I am eager to come preach the gospel to you. And you know what? He does that exact same thing in this whole letter. He writes a whole letter concerning the gospel to Christians. This is a, is a general letter to all the lost in Rome. Not that he's opposed to that. But you see there, he is actually on an agenda. And why? Why would he want to preach the gospel to them? Folks, if you go back up to verse 5 in Romans 1, you see what it's all about. For the sake of the name of Jesus Christ among all the nations, you know what Paul wants? The obedience of faith. And obedience the fruit of obedience that flows forth from faith. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel. You see what he sees? As the gospel is preached, and as you set a righteousness before the people of God, over and over and over and over, their faith latches on to that. It latches on to, to a crucified Savior, to one who has paid the entire price, to a man who walked in our stead, accomplished the fulfillment of the law that we never did. Not a single day in our life. We made a travesty of the law of God. We have broken it in every hand. And there the perfect Son of God. He tread this earth perfectly. He obeyed His Father and was pleasing to Him every moment, every second. And we look at that again and again and again and again. Over and over and over. And what happens? Our faith lays hold on that. Our faith increases. And what does Paul say is ultimately the fruit of that faith? It is obedience. You know what? You can talk about faith. You can say you have faith. But if there is not obedience that flows from it, it is no good. It is not a biblical faith. And it is... You understand what I'm saying here? For the sake of His name. That means for the glory of Jesus Christ. What is being sought here by Paul is for the glory of Jesus Christ to preach the gospel, see it to be the power of God unto salvation, not only to the law, but to those who believe. That they might grow in faith. And by growing in faith, they grow in the fruit that comes forth from faith. That's what he said. He said, I long to come to you that I might have some fruit. That's what he says in verse 13. 
in your Bible tonight saying harvest. It's a word that's over and over and over again translated fruit. He wanted fruit among them. What was the issue? You guys, in Romans 15, 15 and 16, he says this, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. And what did he write to them in this whole letter? The gospel. And he's saying this to them. It's by reminder. You guys aren't hearing this the first time because you're already saved. You've, you've heard enough of this truth and believed it to be saved. I'm simply coming back to you again by way of reminder. Why? You know what he says? To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Priestly service of the gospel of God. He preaches the gospel in way of reminder to these Gentiles. And what is it? So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Do you know what he wants? He wants the Gentiles. He puts himself in the place of a priest who's offering up Gentiles. That's us! He's offering us up on the altar of God. Wow, because we've been sanctified through the gospel. That's his priestly service. You see, folks, offering up the Gentiles with a faith that has yielded obedience. Who is the obedience God expects from us? Faith working through love. Amen. There's no obedience to any law in the scripture. The law is all summed up in what? Loving God, loving our neighbor. Folks, a people who sit under the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ that see over and over and over again our acceptance does not lie in my righteousness but in His righteousness. My faith lays hold on that and that faith produces these works of obedience, works of love which He foreordained before the beginning of this very world and Paul comes and says this is the offering a sanctified people, sanctified by the power of God in the gospel, offering it up to God and that for the sake of His name among the nations. That is what is so pleasing to God. That is what brings the, the pleasing aroma to Him. Well, I quickly go on. A numerical proof. If you're still not persuaded about all this, I just want you guys simply to think about the terms saved and salvation as they come up in the scripture. I don't want you guys looking at all these, just listen to me. Matthew 10.22 Matthew 24.13 Mark 13.13 says this, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Future. But you've got to endure all the way to the end before that being saved. See, we talk about saved as past. But Scripture so often, repeatedly, speaks about it, future or ongoing. Romans 5, 9, and 10. Listen to this. Again, we're, we're dealing again with the book of Romans. I want you to see when the concept of faith or salvation is coming up in the book of Romans, how does Paul use it? Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We shall be. We have been justified, but we shall be saved. You see, folks, that just doesn't fit with the way we talk to one another. That does not fit with the way we think. But Scripture, the Apostle, used our justification as past, but our ultimate salvation being saved in future. First Corinthians 3.15 If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. That's, that's speaking about the coming judgment. First Corinthians 5.5 5, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, looking forward. First Corinthians 15.1 and 2 Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Current. Today. First, or 2 Corinthians 
for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. We already dealt with that one. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved, by the Lord, because God shows you as the first fruit to be saved. And how does that be saved happen? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Folks, I tell you, our being saved, our being sanctified by the Spirit, has everything to do with belief in the truth. You see, the two of them are there. They're side by side. There must be a constant, ongoing belief of the truth. It's all about faith continuing. And the only way that you can demonstrate that faith is truly there is by the obedience that flows from it. There really is no other way, folks. You know what Paul says? To the Roman believers, he said, I thank God that your faith is spoken of in all the world. Now, I'll tell you, in Romans 10, he says, we believe with the heart. So how can that which is invisible and in the heart be proclaimed among all the world? Well, because it's not the faith that everybody sees. It's the work that falls from the faith that they all see. That's how they can have this, this faith that's... That that is notoriety in many different places. So, 1 Peter 1, 5, who by, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I know we already looked at that one. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. You see, you get in this word, you get in this gospel, you get in these promises, and by doing so, it leads to salvation. Now, guys, I didn't just indiscriminately go in and pull out the text that seemed to support what I'm saying. I looked at every single usage of salvation and saved in the New Testament, and guess what you find? A handful of verses that use saved in the past tense. It's disproportionate. Most of the usage is being saved or will be saved. But see, our thinking is not like that. We, we don't think of salvation that way. We don't think of the gospel that way. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I, I'm not just wanting to sit here and, and charge you guys with something if you're saying, no, I never... I think that's the way you're saying I don't think we do. Now, is it important? Does it really matter? Oh, yeah. I think it matters. And we'll look at the, the practical point. But first, a referential proof. And I think this probably is as weighty as anything that I have to say. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 1. What I want to do right now is just simply reference two verses that I think you can use in your cross-referencing of Romans 1, 16 and 17. That I think will bring this to life. That actually speak the word very similarly. But actually with a few little changes that actually tend to bring it out in a much more bold sense. 1 Corinthians 15 Now I would remind you, brothers, First thing, of the gospel. Corinthians, you guys are already saved, you're already believers. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you in the past. Paul preached to them in the past, and they were saved through that. Now he says, I want to remind you, which you received. See, they did receive it. They had received what he preached to them. They believed it. In which you stand. They believed it in the past. They stand on it firm even then, even that day. And by which you are being saved. Isn't that incredible? He says to the Christians, it's the gospel which you did believe in the past. But he says very specifically, it's by that gospel you are being saved now. 
he's not saying it in some abstract, detached sense, and like it did in here, and he's still saving me somehow. He's saying it in a practical sense that you are exercising faith in that word, in those promises, and it's bearing fruit in your life. Now, if you hold fast to the word, I truth to you, unless you believe in vain. Now notice what he said. This is very interesting. He says, even though you say you believed back then when you had this one-time experience, he says that's vanity. If your salvation is not being worked out currently, if there is not fruit of it, if you are not standing and believing this, that there are there are enemies of the cross who have been writing out there in this world for the last 15 years or so against this mindset. They want to tell us as long as you believed at one time, no matter how you live after, even if you become an unbeliever, you're an unbelieving believer. Whatever that is. That's ridiculous. Paul says right here, if you stand fast in this, if you go on believing this, it is saving you still. But if you're not holding fast, folks, you believe in vain. You see that connection with the gospel and being saved as a Christian today. You are being saved today by holding holding fast to a crucified man. Oh, he lives there. He's not there still. But in his death on that cross, we have the perfect fulfillment of that obedience and the perfect payment of, of that sin to all who will look to him. The second one I want to look at is 1 Corinthians 1.18. Again, we have, we have very similar cross-references here. 1 Corinthians 1.18. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross. What's the word of the cross? That's another way of saying the gospel. The truth about the cross. The good news of what Christ accomplished on that cross. The Gospel. He says it's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now you see, if you take 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Corinthians 1, you can see what he's saying. You are being saved through the Gospel if you are continuing to hold to it. Here he says, it's the power of God to you who are being saved. This message of the cross. Well, folks, this is nothing other than what you have said in Romans 1.16, is it not? It says there, He is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation or for salvation to everyone who believes. Not to everyone who's lost. It says to everyone who believes. And folks, that's a present continuous verb there. It means it's an ongoing... To you who are believing, it is the power of God to you. Now, if you just start believing for the first time as I'm preaching today, yes, it's power to you. But it's also power to you who have been walking with the Lord for 40 years. It's the power of God in your life now. Amen. It's necessary. And now, I'm going to end with the practical in all of this. The practical proof. The practical ramifications. The gospel truth. Think with me, brethren. The gospel truth that Jesus Christ came to this earth. He wrote himself in humanity. He literally spoke, he wept for this obedience. Lazarus come forth. Tears were still fresh on his cheeks. He looked at the city of Jerusalem and he wept. He sweat for disobedience. You see him in the garden with the great drops, as it were, even of blood, sweating. He wearied himself. You see him beside the well in John 4, wearied when the woman came out to talk to him. He obeyed when it was not easy to obey. He had the power to strike those men dead in the spot who plucked his beard out. He did not. 
he went to the cross. He obeyed all the way to death. Perfect obedience. He paid so that I can come before God and by faith have my sins laid on Him, His righteousness laid on me, and God now treats me like He treats Him. He loves me with the same love He loves Him. And He crushed Him under His wrath for what I deserve. Because is that message practical to you and me today, long after we first believed? You know why it's practical? You know what happens when despair and depression come on your life? You know what happens when you fall into sin? Think with me. You fall into sin. You get to those times in your life where you feel cast down and the devil's right there to breathe in your ear. You miserable, rotten wretch. You think Christ is going to accept you and when that truth comes home to you, folks, oh, I am accepted not based on my falling. I am not accepted because I have fallen head over heels. I'm accepted because of a righteousness outside of myself. Folks, that's life. That's health in the midst of that. And we all get there. It keeps us from depression. It keeps us from discouragement. It's practical. But I'll tell you what else it does in our lives, folks. Even on the other end, you know what happens when the winds of the Spirit blow and our sails are full and on we go. We're blown along by these things and everything seems to be going good and sin's not a problem and triumph and victory are at every hand. Then Satan comes along and says, aren't you doing well? And folks, one look at that cross, one look and talk about the righteousness of God that is for me. I'm reminded and I'm humbled. I still have to be accepted by God by a righteousness of another. It humbles us. It picks us up when we're down, but it also humbles us when we're up. It reminds us of who we are. It reminds us that we have no acceptance with God. Though we do everything and live the life blamelessly like Paul did, it's all happening. Folks, it is practical at every hand. It is practical when you get discouraged about the condition of your lost children, your wayward children. You come back to this, that there is a righteousness of God that is given, that God justifies the ungodly. And you can look at your ungodly children and there can be hope in the midst of that despair. Or even, folks, when we think about trying to reach these hard-hearted Muslims over in Turkey, you can get discouraged about that thinking, this thing, this thing is not. You know, again, Satan loves to come along in these situations, whisper in our ear, this is useless, hang it up, go home, give up. You can't reach these people, they're too hard. We can think, start thinking then about people out here in these streets, look, they come lift us off, our doors are going now. Oh, hey, the door handles are gone for the second time. It is this too hard. We might as well give it up. Go back. We'll move up to the north side. We don't have to go up to the garden. But you know what? We don't have to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We realize that God can take the most foulest, wretched person out of you because it is not based on their merit. It's not based on them living more lives out here that they're going to be saved. Look, this helps us when it comes to racism. It helps us when it comes to prejudice in our lives. It helps us when we tend to look down on others. Because you know what you start remembering when you look at that cross and you look at that work and you look at that righteousness that is before us? It's not on my own standards. And you don't look down at other people. You don't look at others like, well, I'm better than they are. You realize, no, I was bad. And I needed to have something imputed to me and turned to my account based on the merits of another because I didn't have it there to merit anything with. Then look at that cross. Or look at the righteousness of God found in the life of Christ, the obedience of Christ. 
for he obeyed perfectly the law, obeyed perfectly. It is so applicable. It is so necessary. We need to run back there again and again and again and again and again. And folks, what I'm telling you is there is some mysterious operation in the midst of all of this whereby we go back and look at the cross again. We consider an alien righteousness over and over and over again. And the Spirit of God sanctifies us by His power in the midst of that. What I'm telling you is, folks, there is power in this message. There is power to be had in your life. You say, oh, woe is me. My life is so unfruitful. So bury yourself in the vision of the cross. Bury yourself at the feet of the cross. Look at what Christ earned. Hear Him say, it is finished. When John the Baptist took Him down there to baptize Him, what, what did He say? Lord, what in the world are we doing here? You should be baptizing me. He said that all righteousness might be fulfilled. That was one time He said it. But I'm telling you, every day he woke up, every day he walked, when he was asleep, right before he went to bed at night, as he prayed, as he helped, whatever. It was always with this in mind, that all righteousness be accomplished. He did it every moment of his life. He accomplished the perfect righteousness all the way to the very closing moment on the cross where he could say, it is finished. It was done. Here is a righteousness I can bring to my Father that he can now impute to my people. Oh, beloved, that's our life. And when we move through this Christian life, you are being saved, folks. You are approaching an ultimate salvation. As you look to that, you hold to it, you believe that, you trust it, you have faith in that. And there will be a power of God unleashed in your life that will bring about such fruitfulness and obedience, Lord can only accomplish. You can't. You get to the place where you say, man, I just, I'm failing in this part of my life. I just need to grip my teeth and bear it and really overcome this. You know what you really need to do is you need to contemplate and meditate on the fact that there is a righteousness that comes from God, not based on your merit. See the cross. See all the glory and all the beauty in what Christ accomplished. And it's in that folks. It's in light of, of faith that lays hold on that that stands there that you'll overcome and that you'll triumph. This is how we've got to fight sin. This is how we've got to overcome. This is how we've got to be victorious in the church. Folks, I'm convinced of this. Those churches whose songs are most filled with this truth, whose prayers are most filled with this truth, and where the teaching is most filled with this truth, they're going to be the strongest. They're going to be the most fruitful. They will be. You want to talk about what God gives emphasis to in the New Testament? It's this, folks. It's the gospel. Amen. You know, with all the other things that flow out of it, it's the gospel. There's nothing bigger. It's not like you believe it the first time and now we go on to higher doctrine and greater things and advance beyond this. It's not that. It's coming back. That's what our glory is, over and over. We have to chew on it, meditate on it, we have to eat this folks. This gospel is the power of God. Isn't that what we want? Oh, it brings power! We, we pray to it, bring revival, bring power! Have you ever seen a church that then in the midst of revival they didn't focus on the gospel and Jesus Christ on the cross? There never has been one, folks. Not a true revival. Not only man made invitation, but every true movement of God. Everything. Wherever you see great demonstrations of the power of God across the centuries, that, that righteousness is counted to us. We're going to look at it in the weeks ahead. Folks, you know what this is called? It's called justification. It means I'm ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. And that means He takes an ungodly sinner and based on the merit of Jesus Christ, He says, You're righteous. You're just. That's our hope. You have no other. You have no other. 
Lord, we pray that the gospel would live in power among this church as long as this church holds together for however long into the future the decades come. Lord, we might even hold centuries. May you stand this church fast on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth of justification, the truth of an imputed righteousness, the righteousness of God, which is for those that believe. Lord, we thank you. Those of us that have it, we, we praise you for it. Lord, we thank you that you kept the rain off us, kept the sun off us. It's a very pleasant day to meet outside. Lord, we thank you for the glories there are in the cross. 